so glad you were able to get it to work. Okay, yeah. Just a second. Okay, I don't know now with my brand new camera and everything and right. Okay, we are ready to start. Go right ahead. Oh, thank you. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. This is Kathy Diamond speaking. I'm so sorry. I had some technical difficulties and wasn't able to see you today on Zoom. I, um, I'm really sorry about that. So the second best is, maybe not only the second best, for those of you who use the phone line, this is the call-in phone line. Um, I also would like to apologize for a bit of hoarseness in my voice. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to last for the whole talk. It, we, uh, we've been fighting a, some kind of a virus in our family, but thank goodness everything is okay. Okay. So the book that I'm going to be speaking to you about today is called Swimming Back to Trout River. It is a book by Linda Rui Fang. It's her debut novel, and um, I had never read anything by her before. I haven't read any of her nonfiction or any of her short poetry, her short prose or poetry, but this book was recommended to me by someone whose reading taste I trust, and uh, I can now recommend it to you to, to read. It is a novel that was published last year, or perhaps only a few months ago, in 2021. Linda Rui Fang is a writer who was born in Shanghai. She emigrated to the United States as a young adolescent. She has lived in San Francisco, New York, and Toronto. She is a graduate of Harvard and Columbia Universities and is currently a professor of Chinese cultural history at the University of Chicago. Sorry, at the University of Toronto. As she says, this is how she writes about herself, and this is her talking about herself in her own words. I am a writer, a scholar, a practitioner and researcher of imaginative storytelling. As a fiction writer, I have been awarded a number of fellowships, including a Toronto Arts Council grant and various residencies, author in residencies. Um, she says also, my, pose, my prose and poems have appeared in journals such as The Fiddlehead, Kenyan Review Online, Nimrod, never heard of that publication, Nimrod, The St. Anne's Review, and a number of others. I have also written essays. This is again Linda Rui Fang, the author of the book Swimming Back to Trout River, which is the name of the book that we're talking about today. She says, I have written essays about the immigrant experience, which is what this book is about. I have written fiction, and I have written about the sciences as well, and even reviews of dance performances. She says, I am a scholar of Chinese cultural history, and as such, I am drawn to thinking about forms of writing with a strong sense of place. 
my first scholarly monograph, which was called City of Marvel and Transformation, explores the connection between 9th century Chinese literature and the urban space of the capital city in the Tang Dynasty. At the University of Toronto, I teach undergraduate and graduate courses on the history of cartography, the cultural history of food in East Asia, as well as literatures of travel. She says that she is going to be beginning a new research project entitled A Cultural History of Aromatics in Late Medieval China. And this is thanks to an endowment from a fellowship in humanities from something called the Jackson Jackman Humanities Institute. So she is an academic. And this is very interesting. I mean, I just think of this when I read her novel, when I read her novel, because she manages to bridge the world between academia and novel writing, which is not something that all authors can do. As a writer, she says that she inhabits two very different worlds. In her role as associate professor in the Department of East Asian Studies at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at the University of Toronto, she is an acclaimed cultural historian who regularly pours over maps, geographical treatises, and other ancient documents to reveal the truth about life in medieval and early modern China. But when she writes poetry and fiction, she moves inward, she says. Much of the truth she reveals there is psychological and emotional rather than literal. Her first novel, Swimming Back to Trout River, which is the book that I'm talking to you about today, was published in 2021. And this book tells the story of a married couple named Momo and Cassia and an aspiring musician, Dawn, as D, that's spelled D-A-W-N, she's a woman, as they each make their journey from China to the United States variously as student, spouse, and artist in the 1970s and the 1980s. That's one of the narratives of the story. A parallel narrative involves Momo and Cassia's young daughter, Junie, whom they left behind in a small Chinese village called Trout River. They left their daughter behind when they emigrated to the United States for better career opportunities, and their young daughter was going to be raised by her doting grandparents. But she was only supposed to be raised temporarily until her parents found their way in their new country, something which 
many immigrants had to do. Very favorable reviews from such noted reviewing publications, at least in the book publishing world, such as Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Kirkus Reviews, all attest to Feng's ability to create sensitive, relatable characters while showing us readers how events in the interval of 10 years from the 1960s to the 1970s, those years, if any of you will remember, were known as or came to be known as the Cultural Revolution, Mao's Cultural Revolution. So the book wants to show how the events of those 10 years, of those very um, difficult and very important 10 years in the history of modern China, how they reverberated through the lives of the characters in the story. The author, Linda Rui Feng, says, if you write anything multi-generational about mainland China, it is very difficult to avoid that time period, meaning the period of the Cultural Revolution, the 60s, that, that especially that decade between the 60s and the early 60s to the 19, early 1970s. We are still in the process, we Chinese and Chinese immigrants, but Chinese, are, are trying to understand the emotional impact of those years. So as I had mentioned before, Feng herself emigrated to the United States, albeit in her early teenage years, and so she too has long moved between the two worlds, both personally as well as professionally. She says, one thing I really like about fiction writing is that I get to think in terms of what if. Because when you're writing nonfiction in her work as an academic and as a scholar, she is writing about what has happened as a historian, as a scholar. It's not what if. It's this happened and that happened. How did it affect whatever came after it? But it's not what if. So she says that when you write fiction, or at least when she writes fiction, what she enjoys about it is that she can think of, in terms, as she said, of the what ifs. I always wondered, what would the opposite of my own experience have been like? The experience of someone who stayed put if I and my family had not emigrated, had not left China. So this book, Swimming Back to Trout River, is set against the backdrop of China's cultural revolution, and it follows a father's quest to reunite his family before his precocious daughter's 12th birthday. And apparently the 12th birthday is a very important birthday 
in Chinese culture. So that's why this 12th birthday, the father has told his daughter, Junie, that he is going to bring her to America by the time she is 12 years old. Faith herself was too young to have witnessed the cultural revolution herself. But she has always grappled with the idea of whether she could properly describe it. She says that when she was a child, one of her aunts told her that her generation would never be capable of true understanding of that time period. And I think this is applicable. You can apply this to any um, culture that has undergone a traumatic event. And so, you know, we can look at it, say, in the Jewish community, you can think of Holocaust literature, the, the, the literature that the survivors of the Holocaust wrote themselves, and then the literature that has been composed, that, that was written by the children of survivors or the next generation. And survivors, very much in the same way as survivors of the, of the Cultural Revolution in China, survivors of any trauma can say to the next generation, you, couldn't, you can never understand what we went through, which of course is very true because one cannot understand if one has not lived through something. But there is also the need in second generations, in, in children of survivors of whatever trauma, be it the Vietnamese boat people, be it children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, be it the children who survived, whose parents survived this pretty horrific Mao's cultural revolution, that how to describe it. Because even if you don't go through it as personally, you go through it as the child of someone who has gone through it. So this is what Fang herself said. How could I? And, and she, because she has these novel, novelist tendencies, she was very interested in trying to figure out how to tell a story about those who survived this cultural revolution. She says, I always felt even though this aunt told her that she'd never be able to, to be capable of true understanding, she said, I always felt that there was really something worth puzzling over about those 10 years. Those 10 years, let's say it was roughly 1961 to 1971 of that cultural revolution. Not in the academic sense, however. That's not how I wanted to do it. I was more interested, she says, in the micro-histories, in the way that something gigantic like this might play out in less prominent lives. Not in the lives of the politicians or the important people, but in the lives of the so-called everyday people in the country. Later on in her life, Feng says, she found herself at dinner with an author of what is known in China as, and I think this term is so interesting, scar literature, a trauma-infused genre that rose in the artistic community after Mao's death. And so I guess you could say instead of trauma literature, they call it in China scar literature. And she says, this author who I was speaking with said that perhaps only my generation as the one removed, would be able to understand what had happened since we have the privilege of distance. 
And she says, and I think I have double distance because not only do I have physical distance, I also have emotional distance as well. She says, you know, my academic work takes me much farther back into Chinese history. Books, you know, she's written on the Tang Dynasty, which ruled well over a thousand years ago. And she says it's a very different dynamic to research a more modern period. Writers are often told to write what they know, which Fang certainly does. It's no, there is no question that her books are deeply informed both by her academic training and her own life experience. She says that her guiding principle as professor and fiction writer is that she tries to chart the worlds that for her remain as yet undiscovered. I'd like to read to you um, just a bit of the opening chapter of the novel when Junie, who is the 12-year, well, the girl, she's not 12 years old when we meet her, but the daughter of this couple, Momo and Cassia, when she's traveling on a train with her mother on the way to go to her grandparents in Trout River, just to give you an example of the author's style. So the opening chapter of this book swimming back to Trout River, is called Two Children of Trout River. And she begins this way. The train that was delivering Junie to Trout River was just pulling out of the station and gathering speed. And already the compartment was filling up with cigarette smoke and the gregarious sound of sunflower seeds being cracked open. This was 1981, when trips traversing the length of China took days, and the passengers, having waited for that first lurch of the train, now sprang into action. They poured each other hot water for tea from a communal thermos stabilized inside a metal ring beneath the window where Junie sat on the lap of her mother, Cassia. Cassia, too, was set into motion in her own way. She began to tell Junie over and over again to listen to her grandparents as if some urgent and collaborative task awaited them at the end of the journey. The cadence of that litany, listen to them, they know what's good for you, listen to them, they know what's good for you, merged with the rhythmic rattle of the train until the two sounds became indistinguishable. To Junie, who was five years old, and was not otherwise prone to premonitions of loss, it seems as though it seemed as though something unprecedented was about to happen, and it made her almost afraid until the scenery outside the window began to change. Junie had never seen so many dewy rivers and paddies, or so many trembling shades of green, and they exerted a tug on her that the snowy landscape of her birthplace had never done. And listen to the next paragraph. Throughout their trip, passengers in adjacent bunks, noticing Junie's empty trouser legs, asked Cassia, Cassia's Junie's mother, about them, believing themselves to be striking up a conversation with a somber woman who needed company. But Cassia pretended not to hear them, and after this happened a couple of times, no one asked her again. 
She knew that if her husband Momo would hear, he would never ignore these proddings. He always educated his inquisitors, sometimes even chided them in outbursts, saying something like, many forms of human locomotion are possible. Momo was a believer in possibilities. That was the best thing about him, but also the worst. Earlier that year, Momo left for graduate school in America, and it was understood that in a year or two, Cassia would follow. The night before his departure, he managed to borrow a violin that someone somewhere had made into a size that fit the child's fingers. And then the ne- there's a description of Momo trying to teach little five-year-old Junie to, um, to play violin, which he's absolutely not interested in. And so then we find out that Junie, this little five-year-old at the beginning in this opening scene when she's on going to Trout River to her grandparents with her mother, who is about to join the father in America, but is first going to bring the five-year-old daughter, Junie, to the grandparents to be taken care of until the time when the parents can call, can bring her over, that Junie was born with legs that ended just below her knee. So that's why in that third paragraph, we the author describes that Junie's trouser legs are empty. So Junie is this five-year-old little girl who has no legs after her knee. And that's, you know, a major part of the story. But so Junie and, and mother arrive in Trout River, and Junie falls in love with the place. This is the place that she wants to be. It's the most beautiful place that she's ever seen. She's in love with her grandparents, and she wants to spend the rest of her life there. But her parents, especially her father, has made this promise to his little daughter that we, as soon as I can, Junie, you're going to come, and especially by your 12th birthday, we are going to bring you to America. So this novel, Swimming Back to Trout River, tells the stories of Cassia, her husband Momo, and daughter Junie, each presented with the chance to leave a painful past behind, even if these plans do not allow their family to stay together. After Momo moves to the dismally named college town of Chimney Bluffs, somewhere in the middle of the United States, the plans are that Cassia will join him there. Junie, like many children in the 1980s China, is left with her grandparents. And as I said, in this case, it's to a village called, in a village called Trout River. As I said, she's five years old when she moves there with her doting grandparents, and she quickly acclimates, enjoying life in the idyllic countryside. When she is 10 years old, her father writes to her and promises to bring her to the United States in the not-too-distant future. I promise you, he writes her, that we will be reunited here by your 12th birthday, just a year and a half away. Turning 12 is a milestone in a person's life, and we will celebrate it all together. However, Junie does not want to. She intends to stay with her grandparents until they are much older and she is at an age where she can take care of them. In the meanwhile, her wonderful, um, skillful, and creative grandfather, who was a carpenter and tinkerer by profession in his younger years, has 
has been thinking of ways to make his little granddaughter more mobile. When she first arrives there, he builds her a kind of little rocking horse device that she can sit on with poles attached to it so she can become mobile on her own. And then as she gets older, he tries even to build her prosthesis. He tries to build her artificial legs, limbs, which are not available, at least not available in Trout River where Julie is living. And he tries anything he can to help his little granddaughter. So she is very happy there. She has no interest in going to America. And the scenes that are described about America, where the parents are, because after Momo goes, he goes because he's continuing his studies at this college, at this university in this dismally named town of Chimney Bluff in the Midwest, and he's doing well in his studies. And then he sends for his wife, um, I'm not going to give away too much of the plot to those of you who haven't read it, but his wife, Cassia, follows him there. And, and, they are, and he very much wants his little girl, his little daughter, to come there as well. But Junie, as I said, is not interested. She wants to stay with her grandparents in this idyllic trout river. Music has a very important role in the story. And the author has said, too, that music is a very important part of her life. She's not a musician, but music and dance um, are always fascinate, have always been fascinating to her, she said, and so she puts this into her story. At the beginning, Momo, who had learned to play the violin before the Cultural Revolution, wanted to become a musician, but then the Cultural Revolution takes place. Cultural Revolution, it's really a euphemism for these horrible years of terror imposed on China by Mao, where the Cultural Revolution was that everybody had to toe the party line. And if a certain kind of any of the arts was not deemed to be culturally appropriate to the communist cause and, and, and to be good for the Chinese people, the same way as, you know, it's like you could read the same stories about Soviet Union and about, and about uh, what happened there to artists if they didn't toe the party line as to what they should play and what they should do and what they should write or sing. That was the end of them. Same thing is going on here. So Momo was not able to become a musician, um, but it was still always a passion of his, which is why he gives this little violin to his daughter before he goes. Music also gets him through the lonely nights as this new immigrant in this strange college town far away from his family in the United States. But Junie, as I said, is not interested in this, in this violin playing. She's just very happy to be there enjoying the idyllic life in this little town with her grandparents. He has tried to teach some basic notes to Junie before he departs for America, hoping that perhaps she can find something to excel in, like the violin, which would make up for her inability to walk. Other characters in the story also play the violin, including Momo's first love, the woman who I'd mentioned, Dawn, is another one of the of these. She's not main character, but one of the secondary characters who also finds her way to America. But in her case, she finds her way into being, a, she makes a career out of music. The story goes on, and it weaves through the, the threads of the lives of the main characters. You have Momo, you have Cassia, you have, um, less importantly, what happens to Dawn, and how they are there and trying to make new lives for them in America. She says, I was, uh, the author, sorry, the author says, I was always on the lookout 
for hearing about people's understanding and making sense of the cultural revolution. All of those things happened before my time. The, the complexity and the nuance of it always escapes easy summary. Part of me feels like it can only be understood from a fictitious perspective in, in creating stories of individuals. When people in my extended family or people connected to me talk about their stories about this time, about this, this era, this decade of the 60s, the Cultural Revolution, I have always been keen to pick up on the tidbits, and I've always been accumulating these kinds of stories. And so when I finally felt that I had enough material to start on a story, I decided that I was going to tell it, or I was interested in telling part of it through a child's perspective and how a child could turn the story of immigration on its head. And so the title of the book, Swimming Back to Trout River, is, I think, what the author has done here. Because in this book, the two parents, Junie's parents, Momo and Cassia, they leave China, they leave the, the country of their origin, and they go off to America in the hopes of making a better, a better life for themselves and a better life, life for their daughter, who they hope to bring over. But then they have this child, this very seemingly precocious and independent-minded child, who never mind the fact that she's born without legs, you know, after her knees and has, which is a pretty serious physical disability at that time and place, she has no intention, is not interested in joining her parents for the immigrant experience. She wants to stay put in China. So she, and she says at one point, she thinks to herself, if my father really wants to bring me over to America, I am not going to go. I would swim all the way back to Trout River. And this is where the book gets its title. So she says, um, she says, I had a child, this idea of a child in my head saying, I am at home right here. I have everything I need. And how would that impact the narrative of going elsewhere? So the author said, I like the idea that this could play out in a larger set of events with adults in the family and then bring it back to events that happened before the child was born. So we also get, as the novel progresses, the backstories of what happened to Momo, to Cassia, and a little bit more to Don, the third character, before the Cultural Revolution, during those very difficult years, how Cassia and Momo met, they got married, they had Junie, um, and then what they decided would be best for their little family, which was not to stay in China. First Momo leaves, then Cassia follows. And there, as I said, they were going to ask, they wanted their, their daughter to join them, but she is not interested and really has no intention of doing that. She says, that what thing I struggled with when I was writing the book is how much to put in, how much information to put in, because one of the things that I found so interesting about this book is that it writes about this period of the Cultural Revolution. And, um, you know, you depending on how much history you know, but, but the Cultural Revolution was not such ancient history. And you kind of, I kind of remember being here and 
seeing university students walking around with Mao's little red book in their pocket or in their backpack and quoting Mao as if he was some kind of, you know, very good and wonderful and, and inspirational person. Well, maybe a line here or there might have been inspirational, just as perhaps Marx or Lenin were, but in reality, and that's what she describes really in the book, and she has a way of doing it, putting in scenes from the past, the flashback scenes of Momo and Cassia of, and of what happened to them as simple as students, as young people during those years, but that really picked out the horror of those years and the terrible things that happened. And as I said, cultural revolution was really a euphemism for a very terrible period. The author said, I read interviews with musicians. I read different accounts of the 1960s in China. On one hand, I wanted my book to be about particular characters, and their story is what drives the novel. But on the other hand, I sometimes couldn't resist writing about certain factual things that had happened, such as a certain earthquake in 1976, because those moments were also rich with fictional possibilities. I went back and forth about letting the characters drive what was necessary in my story. But then, sometimes, I just wanted to show the reader a glimpse of scale and the amount of detail and the richness that I could show them through fiction about this very difficult period in recent Chinese history. So in this book, we dip in and out of each character's life, not always following a linear timeline, but the glimpses we get of their experiences, of Cassia, of Momo, of Don, of Junie, even the grandparents, Junie's grandparents, they, together with their personalities, come together to form a compelling and thoughtful portrait of an era. So even though we don't spend a lot of time with each of them, by the time the story finishes, at least I felt, we come to understand the characters all the same. There is no, well, there are several moments and several several times when you go, oh, when the author puts something in. But there's no one specific dramatic moment that one can point to. It seems as if each person tends to navigate their life with a quiet dignity. But the ripples of the certain events that happen to the characters last decades. And there are some shocking decisions that twist their lives irrevocably. I'd just like to end, I'd like to read to you the last chapter, bits of the last chapter of the book. As I said at the beginning, so Momo the father has told Junie, his little daughter, before he goes, that by the time you will reach 12 years old, this momentous birthday in Chinese culture, then I will bring you to America and we will be. On her 12th birthday, February 29, 1980, Junie watched as a stranger appeared at their door in Trout River. She carried with her, this stranger, two skinny suitcases. Her manner of dress was enough to distinguish her from all the other adults Junie had seen, 
But even though the stranger brought with her a strong whiff of elsewhere, when she came into their room, it was not an intrusion, intrusion Junie felt, but just curiosity. After the stranger greeted Junie's grandparents, the first thing that she did was to come over and look at Junie. She bent down, braced her hands on her knees, and trained her full expressive eyes on Junie's face. She really looked into her. She seemed to be probing Junie's entire childhood and was trying to predict her future too. Junie was accustomed to adults looking at her in this way. Their eyes usually scrutinized her lower body from knee to wooden toe because by this time her grandfather has made her artificial wooden legs. While in their head, they replayed the story of Junie's life. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, the woman, then she says, when Junie asks the stranger, who are you? I am, the woman said, thinking, let's just say I am someone who also grew up with grandparents. How did you find us, she asked the woman, by accident or almost accident. That was clearly not the whole story Junie knew, and she waited for the woman to explain. Then the woman takes out two violins, and, um, and she shows her the violins, and she gives Junie one of the violins, and the two of them play together. The woman took up her own instrument and placed her bow on one of the strings. Junie did likewise and was delighted at the vibration that followed. She saw that the woman was playing with two strings at once, and she heard the pitch coming from one of the strings rising slowly. Whatever she was doing to that string, the two notes began to sound sweeter every second, as if closing a gap in Junie's mind. Junie could find no words to describe the change in the sound, except that it was as if an empty glass bottle was being filled slowly with water, stopping just at the brim, no more, no less. And that's how she ends the story. So Feng, in this lovely debut novel, captures humor and grief in the, in, in the human experience as well as in this particular story. She captures them in equal measures in the various scenes of the book. And she elegantly references Chinese concepts of fate and luck while building toward a poignant conclusion. This book resonates with the reader from page one. Miss Feng's style is one that eschews, you know, hyperbole. There are no fancy long descriptions. She writes in a seemingly simple manner, and yet she is able, at least, again, this is my opinion, to draw the author in, to draw the author in, and to provide a small portrait of those years, the 1960s, in China, as well as later years in America, as experienced by Chinese immigrants trying to make new lives for themselves. The author digs beneath the characters' outward, um, outward appearances to delve into their emotional struggles as they try to grasp their individual experiences as well 
as their relationships with each other, as fractured as they may be. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm really sorry that it didn't work out on Zoom this month. Wishing you all to keep well and hoping to be with you again next month. Thank you.